What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high-profile speakers in live, interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah. And hello, podcast listeners. This week, we were joined by Anthony Dapperon, author of the new book, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. And Anthony spoke to Shirley Yu, research fellow at the LSE and a political economist on China, all about the turmoil currently engulfing the city, from the history of protest in Hong Kong to whether the protesters are actually achieving their goals or making the situation worse in Hong Kong. So it's a really fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Square, the podcast. I'm Shirley Yu. Well, Anthony, we have a lot to talk about today. China's uh, National People's Congress Standing Committee has just published the details of the proposed national security law for Hong Kong. So what are some of the details within this uh, proposed framework that are particularly important to seeing the future of Hong Kong? Yes, there are many significant features to this new national security law, starting with the way that it's being acted and the fact that it's being enacted at all. just by way of a little bit of background, uh, Hong Kong's constitution, the basic law, has a provision in Article 23 that requires the Hong Kong legislature to enact on its own national security laws for Hong Kong. But that has been a political hot potato in Hong Kong really for the 20-something years since the handover and for various uh, political reasons in Hong Kong. The legislature has not been able to enact that. Now, with the the protests of, of last year, which caused, I think, a great deal of alarm in Beijing, together with a, a deadlock in the Legislative Council that makes it look like uh, it's going to be difficult for those laws to be passed in Hong Kong anytime soon. Effectively, Beijing has now stepped in and said that they are going to write this national security law for Hong Kong and to I- impose it upon Hong Kong from, from Beijing to, to, to get, the, get the job done, feeling that Hong Kong wasn't going to be able to do it. Now, that in itself has been controversial in Hong Kong. Um, f- 
for, for two reasons. Firstly, just the fact that, that Beijing is legislating for Hong Kong. I think some people in Hong Kong feel this is um, encroaching upon Hong Kong's autonomy and, and is contrary to the spirit, at least, of the, the one country, two systems arrangement under which Hong Kong was returned to, to China. Uh, and secondly, there's some people that suggest that there's not a proper legal basis for, for, for Beijing to be doing this. So the fact that it's happening at all and the fact that it's being done in this way has, be, has caused some controversy in Hong Kong. Then moving on to the, the the contents of the law itself, what it will do is it will create four new criminal offences in Hong Kong, uh, secession, subversion, uh, terrorism and colluding with foreign forces. And unfortunately, we don't yet know much more about the specific details of those criminal offences because a, a full draft of the law has not been released. But the National People's Congress have released some other details about the law and the way that it's going to be enacted. And what was very interesting about that release as it came out over the last few days from Beijing, is that the law does much more than just introduce some new criminal offences into the Hong Kong legal system. The law also purports to um, change or intervene in the structures of the Hong Kong government to introduce a new Hong Kong government agency and a National Security Commission for Hong Kong to require the police to set up a special national security section to require the Department of Justice to set up a special prosecutor's office for national security laws and to introduce a number of other, a number of other interventions into the Hong Kong governance and legal system. And again, one of the ones that has been of particular controversy in Hong Kong is some suggestions around what the law will do in relation to the power of the Hong Kong courts and to Hong Kong's rule of law. What we understand the new law will do will entitle or empower Hong Kong's chief executive to hand-select which judges will be hearing these trials. And we also understand that in some very rare, serious cases, and again, we haven't seen the draft law, so we don't know what cases they will be, but in some cases, the jurisdiction will be taken out of the hands of Hong Kong and, and taken directly to, to mainland courts, so bypassing the Hong Kong uh, justice system entirely. And then also, the, the, the interpretation power of the law will rest not in the hands of the Hong Kong courts, but in the hands of the National People's Congress in, in Beijing. So there's a number of, of, of changes to the way these national security cases will be handled um, in Hong Kong compared to the normal criminal justice system in Hong Kong, which is causing some alarm around what this means for, for Hong Kong's rule of law. So that's just some of the reasons why this is really a, a really very significant new law for, for Hong Kong in, in many respects from its governance structure to its, to its legal system. Mm. So uh, Anthony, uh, you have written a whole book on this whole protest movement that basically started uh, over the summer in 2019. This has been a protest that's been going on for a year. It went through the 70th uh, uh, celebration of uh, the founding of the People's Republic of China on October 1st. And I would imagine this uh, Beijing's move on this uh, national security law is a deliberated move. It didn't happen all of a sudden. So was that a surprise to Hong Kong that Beijing has actually enacted uh, this uh, uh, national security law now? And uh, what is the mood like in the city in the past few weeks? Uh, look, you know, it, it, it did come as a surprise. But I think in retrospect, as, as you suggest, looking back at the course of events, of the last 12 months, it probably shouldn't have come as a surprise. So, you know, the, the protests in Hong Kong became very intense, in some cases very violent. Um, in some cases, specifically, the, the slogans used by some of the protesters were uh, anti Communist Party or anti-Chinese rule. Um, even some protesters had talked about uh, Hong Kong independence. And these are things that are extremely inflammatory to Beijing and, and Beijing considers as matters of national security. And when the Communist Party fourth plenum met last year, they made a number of statements about wanting to improve the national security uh, legal framework in Hong Kong. Now, at the time, people people noticed that and assumed that it would mean they would push the, the LegCo to go ahead and, and on their own enact these Article 23 laws. But I think at least reports that are coming out now are suggesting that even back then, Beijing had in mind taking this move of, of enacting the laws themselves. So uh, the, then as we saw changes in the leadership of the, the senior Beijing leaders who are responsible for overseeing Hong Kong, Xi Jinping put in some, some very close allies of his into those positions. And then we saw some very strongly worded rhetoric coming out from Chinese government departments that oversee Hong Kong policy, such as the, the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office of the State Council, 
and the central government liaison office here in Beijing. And all of these strongly worded statements were directed towards the, the gridlock in the LegCo, the, the, the national security situation, the, the, the protests. And so when finally the announcement did come that, that the National People's Congress in Beijing will be stepping in over the heads of the Hong Kong legislature and making this law, it did cause some shock. But looking at what had, what, what had been telegraphed over the previous months, it, it, had, been, it had been foreshadowed. But, but certainly uh, there has been, a, a, I think it's a great deal of, of unease in Hong Kong. There is an, there is, uh, there's been a number of, of public opinion polls that have been taken. Um, the, the the gist, I think, of the public opinion polls, to, if I think I, I can summarise them, you know, in, in a nutshell, is that people generally understand that. I would say a majority understand and accept that Hong Kong should have some kind of national security law. But people are generally opposed to Beijing enacting it in this way. And I think the Hong Kong community would be much more comfortable if it was left to the, the Hong Kong legislature to introduce this law themselves. And then many of the details that have been coming out about what this law will contain and the way it will be, the way it will intervene in, in the Hong Kong uh, legal system, I think is causing a great deal of unease. So there's a, there's, there's on the one hand, a, I think, probably a, a, a great deal of unhappiness and discomfort about what's happening, but also a sense that there's not much that people can do about it. Um, unlike the extradition bill last year, where people took to the streets in their hundreds of thousands and, and effectively prevented the bill going ahead, they stopped the Legislative Council meeting and being able to debate the bill. Uh, this time, it's all happening in Beijing. So matter, no matter what people do on the ground here in Hong Kong, they're not going to be able to change the outcome of, of what happens on the ground uh, up, up, up in Beijing. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why Beijing is taking the action that they are taking to, to try and forestall any kind of dissent. And so there, I think, is perhaps a, a bit of a sense of hopelessness as, as a result among some of the protester community. And, and I really should, you know, to be fair, also point out that there is some members of the Hong Kong community who, who support this and, and think that it's going to be a, a good thing and, and restore some stability to, to Hong Kong. And I think that that's probably the, the, the last important point to bear in mind, that Hong Kong really is a, a, a deeply divided society at the moment um, as a result of the events of the last 12 months. And there's, I think, a lot of um, uh, a lot of work that needs to be done by the government to try and heal some of those wounds. But unfortunately, the, the government have not really been behaving in a way that is working towards doing that healing, unfortunately. Mm, Hong Kong sounds like a divided society, just like uh, many other societies around the world. Exactly. These days. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Anthony, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of these uh, sort of uh, protest demands and uh, Beijing's demands as well uh, that are surrounding this whole one country, two systems framework. But at the same time, Hong Kong has always been, in a sense, a cosmopolitan city throughout the 20th century. You did mention in the book that uh, uh, how Hong Kong was shaped uh, in the 20th century was essentially very different from that of China's. When Qing Dynasty faltered back in 1911, you mentioned in the book just a little over 100 years ago, Hong Kong didn't have to join the anti-imperial period, not the warlord period, not the civil war, not the, certainly not the Great Leap Forward, not the Cultural Revolution. And yet uh, China's 20th century has been very much defined by these uh, moments. And so perhaps there is really, beyond the political systems, there is a great gap in the mutual cultural and the social understanding or misunderstanding on both sides. Is the gap reconcilable? No, you make a, a very good point, and I think that's true. That the, the, the historical experience of of the people in Hong Kong has been very different. And uh, I mean, uh, as far as you know, is the gap reconcilable? I mean, I, I think I have to say that that it, that it is, and that it can be. And, and the reason why I say that is, I, th I think back to a time in Hong Kong, say going back twelve years ago to the time of the Beijing the Beijing Olympics in two thousand and eight, and and then. And really, in the in the years after that, from from starting in the handover in 1997, when things appeared to carry on as normal in Hong Kong, going through the the time of SARS and the time after SARS, when when the the, the central government in Beijing had a number of policies to support the Hong Kong economy, and then moving on to 2008, the the Beijing Olympics, I, I think that it's fair to say that the 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 attitude of people in Hong Kong towards towards Beijing's rule and towards China was, was quite positive. Um, and people felt generally quite happy. And, and there, was a, there was a sense that, that, the, the, that there was there's no gap to reconcile or, or the gap to reconcile was much narrower. But the gap has grown wider, unfortunately. And there are, I think there are a number of different reasons why that gap has 
grown wider. I think part of it is is socioeconomic. Part of it is the fact that the Hong Kong economy now has become so reliant on the mainland economy, so reliant on on mainland tourists and visitors and and investors. And I think that has led to some some discomfort in Hong Kong. Part of it is also political. That I think it's fair to say that in the in the, the last five years, Beijing has become increasingly interventionist in Hong Kong, really beginning from the umbrella movement in 2014 onwards. Um, Beijing has, I think from the view of many people in Hong Kong, sought to restrict Hong Kong's autonomy or interfere in various ways that have, again, widened that gap. And then the, the protest movements that have unfolded in the years since then have started to feed into this sense or, or, or been driven by this sense of a unique Hong Kong identity. And, and I think that has been exacerbated by the way that Beijing has behaved and then also fed by the, the dynamics of the protest movements here that has led to this sense that Hong Kong people are wanting to distinguish themselves in some way and, and think about what is it that makes Hong Kong special and different from the rest of China and whereas that used to be defined in terms of material wealth and, 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 and technical progress, if you go back sort of you know, 20, 30 years before the handover, that's no longer the case. You know, many large cities in, in the mainland are just as developed or if not more developed than Hong Kong. Um, and certainly the, the mainland is now far wealthier than Hong Kong. Uh, but so, so people are looking to define that identity in terms of cultural aspects and also in terms of the, what they call the Hong Kong core values, the, the, the rights and freedoms that, that Hong Kong enjoys that the rest of mainland China and indeed many other places in the rest of Asia do not enjoy. And, and so that's sort of the, 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 the gap has gone from from being you know, one purely of, of perhaps historical experience and viewpoint to, to, to a sense that there is, there is now something appreciably different about the two communities. And that's something that I think the, the protests have, have, have fed. And, and I think that unfortunately, as I say, the, the government has been seeking to, to, to bridge that gap, not through sort of reconciliation and understanding, but by trying to, to force people into, into, into changing their minds, which is not necessarily the most uh, constructive way to go about it, I would think. Mm-hmm. So the socioeconomic problem in Hong Kong, of course, there is a wider income disparity and we all see that, you know, there is this whole, but this is a part of the global phenomenon. It's not really unique to Hong Kong. Is it fair for Hong Kong and particularly youngsters today to say, well, because there is a wider or disparity, you know, perhaps less of a uh, economic uh, ascending ladder for for the younger generations, and we should blame it all on the Chinese mainland. Um, well, I don't think that's necessarily what they are saying. So, I mean, look, certainly on the, the the first part of your question, yes, there are the, the, the divides that you see in Hong Kong are in in some ways similar to the divides we're seeing uh, in other parts of the world. And actually, one thing that I found very interesting about the the demographics of people supporting the protests and, 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 and supporting the government last year, uh, there were a number of, of opinion polls and surveys that tried to establish the demographics of who was on which side. And, and very broadly speaking, the way that it panned out was that people supporting the protesters tended to be young, so aged 18 to 30, and also tended to be well-educated, generally university-educated or above, whereas people who were supporting the government and the police tended to be from the older generation, 60-plus, and also are people who only had primary-level education. And so that demographic divide that you saw here in Hong Kong was something that has been replicated in many places around the world. And if I took the the label off the graph, as it were, and, and told you this was a, 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 a an explanation of, of or an illustration of demographics for you know, pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit in the UK or pro-Trump or anti-Trump in the US, we'd often find, I think, that it's similar demographics on the, on the respective sides. So there is something, I think, in this moment, and whether, I guess, you know, Economists and, and others will be able to speak to this better than I can, but whether it's sort of a long-term consequence of the, the, the global financial crisis of 2008 or, or what it is, the, the sort of social inequality that's driving this kind of dynamic, it, it's just interesting to see that it's replicated um, you know, uh, around the world. But, but uh, to the, the second part of your question, I, I don't think that, that, that Hong Kong youngsters or Hong Kong protesters necessarily are blaming Beijing for this dynamic. And, and I don't even know necessarily that that's what they're protesting about. And I know that it, it became a, a narrative that, that the Hong Kong government and the government in Beijing and, and many elements of society here liked to use as an explanation for why these young people were out on the streets. And, and look, you can't deny that, that there is an element 
to that, 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 that if you say there's some element of hopelessness driving people out onto the streets, what, what, what is that? And this sort of, you know, socioeconomic opportunity may be an element, but that's not the explicit, that wasn't the explicit purpose of their protest. And when they were out on the streets, you never heard them chanting, you know, I want more for- affordable housing or, or, or I want, uh, you know, I want job opportunities or what have you. And, and speaking to them, that was never something that they articulated. And indeed, many of the people, if not on the streets, then sort of behind supporting the protests were middle-class professionals, people who, who had, were very comfortably off and, and owned their own property and, 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 and are sort of, you know, winners in this system, not people who were, who were struggling to find a job or struggling to get on the housing ladder. And they all supported, and, and in many cases, uh, not that they all, but you know, they, they supported and, and participated in the protest movement as well. So I think it, it's, while it was an element, I think it, it's, it's, a bit, it's, not, it's a bit too convenient to, to, to suggest that it's the only reason that the people were out there protesting. Mm. And yet uh, there is an undeniable sense of uh, genetic connection, of course, between the Chinese mainland and the uh, Hong Kongers. And that's basically what uh, Beijing believes is that uh, Hong Kong, you know, that there were rhetorics uh, earlier that Hong Kong is basically like a child that is disobedient to the motherland. And so this uh, strong sense of Chinese millennial uh, you know, millennial uh, tradition of uh, filial piety. How strong is that sense of patriotism in Hong Kong, uh, as you see now? Look, I, I think not not very strong, uh, and particularly among the younger generation. Speaking to some academics who've done who've done some research around interviewing young localists or young people in in, in the localist political movement in Hong Kong. Uh, the the sentiment they express is that they feel that that Hong Kong is a very different place from the rest of China, and interestingly, many of them um, many of them have you know, family across the border in mainland China, or have taken family trips across the border to mainland China, and uh, at least from what these academics have told me from the, their interviews, that those trips are what sort of crystallise the idea in these young Hong Kongers' minds that Hong Kong is different. Um, and and it's, 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 it's interesting and it's very complex because indeed many of them have, uh, you know, have, have family across the border or, or their, their parents emigrated from across the border. Indeed, one of the most prominent of the localist uh, Hong Kong activists, Edward Leung, who's, who's currently serving a jail sentence for rioting, but he was one of the, 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 the spokespeople for the Hong Kong indigenous uh, localist political party. He himself was born in mainland China and emigrated from the mainland uh, with his mother when he was a, a small child to Hong Kong. So the, there's, it's, it's, it's interesting and complex that, that people with these with these roots, nevertheless feel that there's a distinct identity that they are wanting to, to stand up for. And that's the thing I think that, that, that Beijing really has to reckon with. It's not as simple as saying, you know, you're all Chinese, so you should be, you know, with us. Because there are clearly people who are absolutely, they're Chinese, but they still feel the need to assert some kind of separate identity. And, it, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, and complex phenomenon. So now, Anthony, in retrospect, when Lady Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping negotiated the Sino-British Joint Declaration back in 1984, that's a long time ago. So do you think at the time they each had in mind exactly the same future for Hong Kong? Perhaps at the time, Deng had a different idea and they both actually didn't meet from the very beginning. Yeah, look, that, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's, I mean, obviously we're, we're sort of speculating or, or, or guessing as to what in particular was in, was in Deng Xiaoping's mind. I think we can assume that at least from the Margaret Thatcher and the UK's side, they were assuming or, or, or hoping or expecting that, you know, China was at that time at the beginning of a process of, of opening up and reform and that China, I think people in the West felt inevitably would, would get wealthier and as it got wealthier, become more liberal. And, and by the time we got to uh, perhaps not the handover, but certainly to 2047, that the mainland will have largely converged with Hong Kong and, and so that the, the, the distance would no longer be that great. And I think that's the assumption that underlined the, the UK approach to it. Now, I don't know whether whether Deng sort of felt a, had a similar view of how China's China's future would, would unfold. And I mean, there are various reports that he indeed had some ideas about political liberalisation in the future. I don't know how reliable they are, but I think it's, it's fair to say that probably the way China developed exceeded or turned out differently from everyone's expectations. Um, and, and seeing what's happening 
now that the, the China has become really so quickly when you think about sort of the, the historical timeline, the, the second largest and I think soon to become the largest economy in the world uh, to become uh, effectively a, a global superpower, um, but at the same time to not converge towards the, the idea of liberal democracy, but to continue to follow its own model is something that I think probably many people back in 1984 would not have expected. And I don't think they would have expected that it would be Hong Kong converging with the mainland rather than the other way around. <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, analysis. And especially uh, currently, not only to talk about a different system, but even uh, talking about the system superiority, as we saw last year in the party's Congress in Beijing. And so, uh, Anthony, coming into this uh, particular democracy, separatist movement in Hong Kong, however, you know, uh, both sides term it. What is the history and background to this movement and whether even descent before the 1997 handover? Hong Kong has a, a, a very long history of political protest dating back well before the handover, um, uh, indeed going back through the, through the colonial era as well, all the way back to, to the 1920s. And what has been interesting is that you know, throughout its history, from the colonial era through to today, Hong Kong has never had a, a fully democratic system of government. The people you know, have never been able to elect their, their leaders entirely. But they have generally always had the rights and freedoms that tend to go with a democratic society. It's what the, the last governor of Hong Kong has called freedom without democracy or, or liberty without democracy. And so when people in Hong Kong have not been happy with government policy, they're not able to, to vote out the leaders, but they are able to exercise those rights and freedoms and, and go to the street and protest and try and put pressure on the government to change their policies through that mechanism. And, and it's a mechanism that has worked at, at various times through Hong Kong's history. And so it's a, it's a, it's it's something that has led to this, this I suppose, this spirit of, of, of political protest or this, this spirit of dissent in Hong Kong that has a, a, long historical, a long historical legacy and that has continued from the pre-handover era through to the, through to the present day and the post-handover era. Now, in terms of the actual, the, the actual parties or the actual uh, you know, elements of the movement, I suppose some of them could date back to the formation of the, the Hong Kong Democratic Parties when the, when the Legislative Council first introduced uh, democratic, uh, democratic elections in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, but many of them have only formed in, in, in recent years. And I think that in particular, the, the umbrella movement of 2014 was foundational in being a, a moment of political awakening for, for Hong Kong's younger generation in particular. And that led to the formation of a number of um, political parties and activist groups that that have continued to be active through to through to the present day. And that includes both the sort of the, the, the younger generation political parties that have been contesting uh, elections here in Hong Kong, such as the, the Demosisto Party, founded by some of the former Umbrella Movement leaders. Um, and that also includes some of the more, uh, I guess you could call them fringe groups, the, the, the localist or nativist fringe groups that formed uh, or, or gained momentum in the in the time after the umbrella movement when there was a great deal of of discontent with the government also discontent with the way the the mainstream traditional democratic parties had functioned and people seeking i suppose a more uh, extreme route to it to, to voice their dissent and so those parties developed in that era um and, and have, I think, continued to gain momentum or just to feed the movement in, in the last 12 months as well. So in the book, you did talk about a lot of the comparisons between the Umbrella Movement in 2014 and the current one in 2019. Uh, you did talk about the connections earlier, but what are the differences and why are those differences significant? Mm. Yeah, this is a really key question to, to understanding what happened in Hong Kong last year. The, the Umbrella Movement, just to, to, to give a little bit of background, um, began in 2014 and, and the cause that the protesters were protesting then was a, a model for introducing democracy to Hong Kong. The, 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 the government in Beijing had promised that Hong Kong would be able to um, have uh, elections by way of universal suffrage for the chief executive, the head of the Hong Kong government. And then the point of contention was around what the model would be for the those elections and the members of Hong Kong's pro-democrats were hoping for completely open elections where anyone would be able to nominate themselves and, and run for office. But the model that, that Beijing ultimately offered was a model that uh, was a bit more restricted that 
nominees would require nominations from 50% of a, a small circle nomination committee of a, of a thousand or so members, um, and that there would be no more than two or three candidates permitted to run in the election. And so as, uh, to protest this limited model, the uh, Hong Kong's pro-Democrats um, decided to institute a campaign of civil disobedience to try and put pressure on the government to, to change their approach to this this model of democracy. And the civil disobedience movement that they chose was modelled on the Occupy Wall Street protests of, of, a, of a few years earlier. And so what they proposed to do was to blockade the streets of Hong Kong's downtown central business district and, and by causing disruption through this blockade, put pressure on the government and, and force the government to come to the negotiating table and negotiate. Now, ultimately, the, the group that organised that, the, the Occupy Central trio led by an academic from Hong Kong University called Benny Tai, uh, were joined with by, by the young student leaders in Hong Kong, a, a group called Scholarism led by Joshua Wong, who's now become a, a, a world famous figure, and the, the student university student, the university student unions, the Hong Kong Federation of Students, and together they led this. They led this occupation. Uh, and so the things that were, were notable about this protest movement, that it was an occupation, they were, they were camping on the streets in, in a couple of Hong Kong's key districts for, for more than 70 days. And they were very much led by these leaders, by the Occupy Central group and by the student leaders who had a, a main stage in the middle of the main occupied camp, would give speeches every day and sort of directed the strategy of the movement. And ultimately, the Umbrella Movement was not successful. Uh, essentially, what the government did was they, they waited them out. Um, they refused to, to come to the, the table and negotiate or compromise. And, and after more than 70 days of occupation, I think that the, the movement was exhausted people were exhausted and dispirited um, and the government then took action to, to, to clear the occupied streets and, and the movement ended without achieving any of their political aims and and so that had a number of lessons for Hong Kong's activists and protesters that they then took into the protest movement of last year and in many ways it was a direct reaction against the, the the tactics of the umbrella movement that had failed. The, the, the first one was this occupation strategy, this idea that if you just sit still in a fixed area, eventually the government will be forced to negotiate. And everyone saw that that didn't, that didn't work back in 2014. And so last year, they did not adopt that kind of strategy. Instead, they adopted what's been referred to as a be water strategy, which is uh, inspired by uh, Bruce Lee, the, the Kung Fu movie uh, action hero. Um, and so instead of staying fixed in one space, the protesters were very fluid and dynamic. They moved around the city. They would undertake a protest action in one location um, and then would move to another location if they met resistance in the form of police rather than uh, necessarily try and clash with the police, they would flow away whenever the police advanced. And so it was a very fluid, very dynamic movement. What that meant was that it was, it was very resilient. It was difficult to, to capture or to stop or to, or to sort of contain. And it also meant that it, it could last for much longer because there was no need for people to commit themselves you know, physically by camping in a tent on a concrete road for three months. Um, they could come out in these mobile protests every, every weekend. Um, but then at the end of the day, they would just go home and, and, and sleep in their own beds and then come back the next day and do it again or come back the following weekend and do it again. So it meant that the, 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 the protest wasn't defined by physical space and could be much more resilient in terms of the way that it was carried out. And then the second lesson that the protesters learned from the Umbrella Movement was, was the, the, the lead, leadership. And so the movement last year was famously referred to as a, a leaderless movement. Um, there was no central stage. There, was no, uh, there were no leaders directing proceedings. And again, that meant that there was no obvious targets for arrest. M many of the Umbrella Movement leaders had been arrested and, and, and jailed for their role leading that protest movement. And indeed, Joshua Wong himself was only released from prison in, in, in a number of weeks into last year's protest movement. Um, and so this approach without having any leaders, again, meant that the protest was, was, was very adaptive and very organic. Um, and it also seemed to inspire a level of, of ownership within the participants themselves. And speaking to some protesters, they would say that they thought it was great that there was no leadership. And whereas in the umbrella movement, they chafed a little at being, you know, told what to do by, by protest leaders. Um, this time around, everyone could contribute as much as they wanted in whatever areas or whatever roles they felt comfortable with or they felt they were able to contribute. Um, and, and as a result, it, it empowered people. And so this was, uh, this was something that um, 
that that was another lesson that was learned, you know, learned from the umbrella movement and, and fed into the dynamic of, of last year's protests. So be water and the leaderless. Uh, we are going to take a 10 second break. Anthony Deparent will be back with uh, more questions and answers on 2019 protests uh, in Hong Kong and uh, the city's future. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So Anthony, uh, your book uh, has just reminded me as I was reading yesterday, uh, chapter one, that this whole Hong Kong event uh, just started basically uh, because a Hong Kong couple went on a romantic trip to Taiwan and the boy murdered the girl. And it has gone through such a wild escalation and we almost forgot where it all started. And so bearing that very beginning in mind, what were the purpose of the protest at the very at that very moment and how have those purposes evolved over time yes um it, it's it's a good question that and, and an important reminder that this did all begin with a very sad very tragic story a a, a young woman in hong kong from hong kong was 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 murdered by her boyfriend when the couple were were on a holiday to taiwan um and then the the the, the boyfriend fled back to fled back to Hong Kong after the incident. Um, and, and this created a, 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 a legal dilemma because uh, under Hong Kong law, you cannot be tried for a murder that was committed outside Hong Kong. So once the, the man had come back to Hong Kong soil, he couldn't be arrested and put on trial in Hong Kong for that murder that occurred in, in Taiwan. And at the same time, Hong Kong did not have any um, extradition agreement with Taiwan. So there was no fixed mechanism for the Hong Kong authorities to extradite him back to Taiwan to face trial. And so the government was faced with a dilemma and, and a desire to to do justice for, for this 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 poor uh, departed girl and her family. How do we bring her her killer to to justice? And there were a number of suggestions and a number certainly a number of possibilities that the government could have considered, including negotiating an ad hoc arrangement with Taiwan. But what the government ultimately decided to do under the leadership of Carrie Lam was to amend the law in Hong Kong or to introduce a, a law in Hong Kong that would enable criminal suspects to be extradited anywhere in the world, regardless of the presence of an extradition agreement, subject to a number of, of procedural hurdles and, and protections. But what that opened up, of course, was that that people could be extradited from Hong Kong also to face trial in, in mainland China. And that provoked a very strong reaction from the Hong Kong community. And it really cut it cut across the entire Hong Kong community. It wasn't just the, the pro-democracy activists or the, you know, the, the the, the, the so-called dissidents that were against this. Many people from, you know, from other walks of life and including the business community were very concerned about this because they were worried that if they got into business disputes with, with business partners across the border in China or with local governments in China, um, that they might find themselves at the, at the receiving end of an extradition request uh, from the mainland authorities for, for, for whatever offences they might have, uh, may or may not have engaged upon in, in mainland China. So there was a very strong and, and pretty unified public opinion against this extradition bill and that's why we saw these huge protest marches of of upwards of over a million people some reported as many as two million people and i think it's fair to say that the the public opinion was almost universally against this extradition bill and so that was what started the protest movements people felt that this extradition bill was going too far it was threatening to to breach the legal firewall between hong kong and the mainland and that to 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 resolve the the issue of, of this taiwanese murder case there were other paths or other 
other approaches the government should have taken. And so people were trying to stop the extradition bill. But very quickly, the protest movement morphed. And, and it morphed, I think, for two reasons. Um, firstly, because there were very early on some, some clashes with the Hong Kong police in the course of the protests. People felt that the police had behaved with using excessive force and they wanted an investigation into way that the way that the police had conducted themselves and they wanted uh, more lenient treatment for people who'd been arrested by the police in the course of those protests. And that became an ongoing cycle where the the Hong Kong police themselves became a focus of the protest movement and the way that the Hong Kong police conducted themselves and the level of the level of force used in the course of putting down the protests became a, a, a target for the protesters and one of the key things that continued to drive the protest movement. The, the other thing was the, the refusal of the government to meaningfully engage with the protesters. They took a long time to formally withdraw the extradition bill, even though it was very clear that, that the public sentiment was against it. They refused really to meaningfully engage in any kind of dialogue with the protesters. And I think that behaviour, combined with the way in which they initially had tried to push this extradition bill through in what people felt was a very high-handed manner, meant that many people were very disillusioned with the government. There was a sense that this government is not governing in the interests of the Hong Kong people any longer. And I think that's what drove the other strand of this protest movement, which was a sense that the only way that Hong Kong is going to have a, a government that, that, that genuinely governs and in the interests of and is accountable to the people is if there is there are democratic reforms in Hong Kong. And that means the, the universal suffrage for election of the chief executive, which was the, the key contentious point of the umbrella movement, um, and, and, and a, a more democracy for Hong Kong's legislature. And so that became then the other aspect of the protest movement last year, that, that this movement became about not just the extradition bill and not just about the police, but also about wanting broader democratic reforms in Hong Kong. And so all of these demands became all of these demands then became wrapped up or summarised in what has been referred to as the five demands. And, and this is sort of one of the key ways that the Hong Kong protest movement articulated what they were protesting for last year. They wanted the five demands, which were uh, withdrawal of the extradition bill, uh, amnesty for arrested protesters, um, an independent investigation into the police behaviour, and then universal suffrage for both the election of the chief executive and the election of, of, of the legislative council. Right. Five demands, no one less, as uh, Hong Kongers called for it. And so give us a scorecard for these five demands so far. Uh, yeah, so the, the first one, the, the withdrawal of the extradition bill, was met. Um, it was met in, in the early days initially by Carrie Lam, the chief executive, saying that she had paused work on on the extradition bill. Uh, it took her a long time to formally withdraw the bill from the legislative process. And that was one thing I think that, that actually drove the ire of a lot of protesters that that uh, you know that she did take so long to take that formal step when it was really very clear from early in in the protests that uh, that, that this thing wouldn't be going ahead. And it's, people regarded it as just purely, um, uh, you know, purely arrogance or unwillingness to back down that took her so long. So that's sort of, that, that's one out of five. The second, the, the, the independent investigation into, into police ha has not happened, but what the government offered as an alternative was a report to be prepared by the Independent Police Complaints Council. Now, that's a, a statutory body here in Hong Kong um, that is supposed to investigate complaints against the police, and they uh, were embarked upon a, a, a process of preparing a report. Um, and that report came out just recently, uh, around a month ago, but it, it was a, really a a great disappointment to, to people here in Hong Kong. The, the Independent Police Complaints Council does not have any independent investigating power of its own right. So they didn't call witnesses um, or have hearings or review documents or anything like that. They they interviewed a number of people on the police side and they engaged in an extensive um, media review, but their investigation fell a long way short of the kind of independent investigation that people were calling for. And so that, that demand was, I guess you could say, you know, halfway, probably not even halfway met. I mean, the government made some gesture towards trying to meet that one. But as for the other three demands, um, all of them have been refused by the government up until now. So in terms of amnesty for arrested protesters, the government has says, had said, look, this is a matter for the prosecutors and the courts. And as, as a matter of Hong Kong's rule of law, we, we can't consider that. We have to allow that process to carry itself out. Um, and as for the universal suffrage demands, they, um, they again haven't, haven't been met. And the, the government has said that they don't think 
think it's an appropriate time to consider further political reform in Hong Kong um, until stability has has resumed. So I guess if you have a, the scorecard at the end of the day, uh, out of five, we have one and a bit out of five. Uh, okay, a little over one. So um, you just earlier talked about uh, this uh, 2019 movement, a leaderless movement. It's hard for me to imagine any organizing uh, people in the scale of uh, over a million people on the streets calling for major social and the political changes in the city without a leader. How is it done? Yeah, it's a really fascinating aspect to this movement that it was organized or empowered very much by technology and really two key technological platforms. One is the the, the messaging app Telegram that many people have on their mobile phones. And, and Telegram has the ability to have very large chat groups, um, chat groups of upwards of 100,000 people. And Telegram also has the ability to have votes or polls inside those chat groups. So you can form a chat group and have people um, make suggestions and then have polls on, on action that should be taken. Separately, there is a, a an online forum in Hong Kong called LIHKG, a kind of Hong Kong version of Reddit, again, where people can make posts and then upvote or downvote the posts. Um, And these two technological platforms were used by the protesters effectively to self-organise. So there would be um, ideas and suggestions debated about what protest actions to take, uh, what the targets of the protest should be, when they should occur. And this information will be circulated around these online platforms and, and voted upon and engaged upon by the community. Uh, and that sort of formed the direction of the movement. Uh, but the other thing, I think, is that it was very much a... Um, uh, the movement operated with a sort of a hive mind. And if I, I, I don't have... Um, the, the necessarily the, the 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 biological or the zoological analogy immediately to hand, but if you think of a whole network of organisms, each of which was sort of independent and operating independently, um, but also sort of fed into a larger whole. So all these little subgroups of people would would come up with their own ideas or make their own contributions in different ways. Whether it was you know, anything from drafting from drawing artwork and creating memes and distributing them online to helping with publicity online to acting as 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 drivers who would drive and pick up protesters and take them home after the protests to people who would donate supplies or gather and donate supplies and deliver them to the protest sites um, all the way through to the, the, the frontline protesters and everyone I think found a way to contribute and organize themselves organically you know very very creatively but I think also spontaneously to come up with this which sort of would then produce this overall organism of, of the protest movement as a whole. And so it was sort of fascinating to watch and, and also fascinating to watch unfold in real time. So if you went to the sites of the protests on an ongoing basis, sort of week after week, as, as I did for, for you know, the seven months last year, you could see different ideas and strategies developing week by week. And what began perhaps as an idea that one person did in one spot um, in one week, you'd see a couple of days later, a few more people doing it. Um, and then a week later, suddenly it would be something that the whole, the whole, the whole crowd would be doing. Um, and you could see this sort of ongoing evolution or learning process of the protesters happening you know, almost in real time before your eyes. So it's a fascinating, a really a fascinating case study in the way that human beings can, can self-organize uh, and, and sort of evolve in, in that way. Mm-hmm. And now, Anthony, with the ensuing enactment of uh, Hong Kong national security law, possibly in the fall, and the potential U.S. sanctions to the city, uh, will the protest movement continue, you think? I think certainly we're not going to see a return to the intensity and frequency of the protests that we had last year. There are a couple of reasons for that. I think, firstly, as you rightly point out, the the national security law and the way that is being enacted in Beijing means there's no immediate targets for pros- for protest in Hong Kong and and, and no prospect of success if they do so. The other important thing to bear in mind is the change in tactics by the Hong Kong police. Um, A new police chief came in Chris Tang towards the end of last year, and he uh, brought about a change in the way the police have been uh, policing the protests since the beginning of this year, rather than allowing large crowds of protesters to form and then coming in and trying to disperse them. The police have been intervening much more early, um, conducting extensive stop and search operations at the 
sites where protests have been advertised, preventing those crowds from gathering, acting to disperse those crowds very early before a large protest crowd can gather. Um, and look, that, that tactic, frankly, has been effective in preventing the large kind of protest crowds building up that we saw that we saw last year. So I think that's another important, another important aspect to why we won't see uh, the same kind of protests this year that we saw last year. But that said, I don't think that means necessarily that the protest movement has completely died away. And certainly the, the, the spirit is still there, that the spirit of defiance is still there. And, and the national security law, I think, is enough to motivate people to, to want to dissent or to want to protest. And the question will be, what form will that take? Um, and I think one important thing to, to look forward to as we have uh, coming up in here in September, um, elections for our legislative council. And I think that many of the people who have been involved in the protest movement are now looking to focus their efforts on on a, the election campaign and on trying to get uh, candidates that, that, that support their views um, into into office, into the legislature. And that's going to become perhaps the, the, the key battleground moving from moving from the streets to the, the electoral process that we have coming up for those September elections. So uh, in your book, Anthony, you also predicted uh, instead of uh, having universal suffrage, eventually the end result for Hong Kong might be just a bigger integration story with mainland China. Is that a sense of fatalism? Is that inevitable? Look, I, I, I think it's at the end of the day, you can't argue with the, the the weight of the numbers, right? I mean, the, the not just the population of China, but the size of its economy, the fact that Hong Kong is so reliant on mainland China in every way, from from the economy to its water supply. Um, it's it's never been a any secret that in the post-handover era, ultimately the fate of Hong Kong is decided in Beijing. It's not decided on the ground here in Hong Kong. And so I think that at best, you know, Hong Kong's activists um, can try and moderate Beijing's approach or, or, or influence Beijing's approach or try and have a, a say in, in, in how Beijing implements its policy towards Hong Kong. But at the end of the day, Beijing will, will pursue whatever policy they, they think is right. And, and it seems clear that, that the, the current approach from the leadership in Beijing is um, firstly to uh, rein in control around all of the fringes of China. And we see that uh, from from Xinjiang through to Tibet, through to the Indian border, through to the South China Sea, through to Taiwan, through to the East China Sea. In all those parts, in all those areas of China's borders, the, the Xi Jinping administration is seeking to assert and, and stabilize all of those fringes in different ways. And so Hong Kong is, is part of that policy, inevitably. Uh, second, there's a... a great sensitivity in Beijing to the issues of, of, of territorial integrity and, and of continued party rule over China in its current territorial form. And so that, again, is, is something that, that drives the approach to Hong Kong. And, and then lastly, there's an important central government policy about what they're calling the, the Greater Bay Area, which is a, a, a policy to integrate the uh, I guess initially the economies of of the major cities in the Pearl River Delta, including Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and and Macau, um, but there have been suggestions that beyond just economically integrating them, there are there are plans ultimately to somehow uh, politically integrate them in different ways, and uh, and so Hong Kong is then part of a a, a bigger picture um, as far as the central government in, in, in Beijing are concerned. And, and so that's something that I think, um, you know, Hong Kong will inevitably be drawn into. So, I mean, in some ways, it's difficult not to be somewhat fatalistic about about the, the, the political reality that, that, that what whatever Beijing decides will go. But at the same time, I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that, that people in Hong Kong entirely, you know, surrender their agency and sort of give up to their fate without continuing to want to have a uh, ha, ha, play an active role in, in their future. And I think that, that that's also something that, that, that is fair enough for them to continue to do. Mm, and if fate is decided by Beijing, uh, would you be also, uh, you know, would it be also convincing uh, to say that perhaps a, a more realistic move for uh, Hong Kongers will be you know, perhaps learning to adapt to this uh, future reality and uh, go about their lives and perhaps just uh, take it as a matter of fact, by sometime 2050-ish, you know, Chu Hong Kong will just be another Chinese city. There would be no difference. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that would be the, I suppose, the pragmatic approach, but that's also, I think, the thing that people are trying to forestall, in particular, this idea that, that Hong Kong becomes just another Chinese city. I think that Hong Kongers are very proud of the, the unique identity that they have, and it goes beyond just the, the Cantonese language and, and the, the culture here, and is sort of a, a, a spirit of the Hong Kong people. I think that they feel they want to keep in some ways distinct. And, and so the challenge is doing that while being a, a part of China, but still having their, their unique identity recognized. And so this, this idea of a fate that is a, an indistinguishable city, just like the rest of China, is something that people is precisely one of the things that is motivating people to, to, to protest. But, but you know, as you say, the, the, the pragmatic thing would be just to try and, and, and get along. But I think the the Perhaps one of the greatest tragedies of, of, of Hong Kong at the present moment is that there's a, a really a great lack of understanding on both sides. I think that, and as someone, I, I've spent many years in Beijing as well, so I, I understand you know, reasonably well the way that the, the Chinese authorities communicate and the way that they view the world. Um, and what I see when I see Beijing and Hong Kong talking to each other is often a really significant mutual misunderstanding. Beijing makes these policy statements and tries to communicate what it feels is its very clear views on on Hong Kong policy, but that message is, is not received in Hong Kong or is not understood in Hong Kong. Um, and then similarly, when Hong Kong protesters come out onto the streets or when, when Hong Kong activists articulate their desires and views, I don't think they're necessarily understood or appreciated in Beijing in the way that they are intended. And so these messages are being sent by both sides, people, each of the senders, assuming that their message is being received and comprehended, when I think in both cases that assumption is, is, is misplaced. Would you also say that Beijing's uh, messages and desires are also misinterpreted by some of the political leaders in the West as well? Yeah, look, I mean, certainly that's, it's, it would be fair to say that. Yeah, I mean, there is a, a, I think many of the assumptions that are, that are, that are, uh, are shared between political leaders in the West and, and the Democrats in Hong Kong. Um, uh, the, the, the example that I, you know, I find really striking, and it was very striking to me at the time, was uh, about midway through the protests last year, um, uh, there had been, Silence from Beijing on on what had been happening in Hong Kong, and then finally, eventually, in the, in I think it was mid September, Vice Premier Han Zheng came out and, and and made a statement on on Beijing's approach to Hong Kong, and it was a very conciliatory statement. It recognised the approach to the extradition bill had been had been inappropriate. It, it recognised a number of uh, issues with Hong Kong society, and it, and it really seemed to acknowledge that there were there was work to be done, and there were there were grievances, the, the fairly fair grievances that needed to be addressed. But because I think you know people in Hong Kong weren't used to to, to, to reading, as it were, the, 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 those kind of statements from Beijing. They didn't appreciate how conciliatory it was. Um, I felt that it was it was merely sort of rebuffing them and not engaging with their demands, and so they continued to push, and that ultimately led to where we are today with a national security bill. But uh, so I think it's it's uh, it, it is ultimately a, a lack of understanding, and I think you're right to say that's 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 often shared you know, by political leaders in the West as well. So, of course, uh, Anthony, you just mentioned that the protest movement is not dead. So we're still watching a continued uh, developing situation here. So let's say uh, when the national security law is enacted in Hong Kong sometime in the coming weeks or months, uh, will there be a possible escalation of uh, protest on the streets in Hong Kong? Will there be possible bloodshed? What would Beijing do at that point? Look, uh- my best guess at the moment is that it would actually have the opposite effect. I think it's going to have a real chilling effect. Speaking to some members of the protest community here recently, a lot of them are very worried about the national security law. A lot of them, especially the more moderate people, have said that they would uh, be reluctant to come out and protest after the national security law comes out because they're not sure how they would be treated under the new law. So I think it's going to have a real chilling effect both on on political protest, potentially on on the media and artistic expression and, and other forms of expression as well. I think in particular when there is still not a good understanding of what the law says and how it's going to be interpreted and applied. And so I think people are going to be watching very closely, not just for the actual 
specific wording of the, the law when it finally does come out, but also to the first cases that are prosecuted under the law. And that might not happen in, in the immediate months or possibly even in, in the years after it's enacted. But people will be keeping a very close eye to see what do the authorities do with this law once they've got it and what will be the new parameters of acceptable behaviour. Um, and that's something that I think everyone is going to be looking at and learning and probably in some senses reluctant to push the boundaries too early on. And so I think for that reason, we probably won't see a resumption of the kind of violent protests we saw last year. Um, and I, I, I say this in full recognition that making bold predictions like this is often, you know, the easiest way to be proved wrong. But, um, you know, at least the, the sense I have talking to, to people is that they're, they're reluctant to, to embark again on a, on, a, on a protest movement like that with this national security law hanging over their heads. And, and look, honestly, that might also be precisely what, what Beijing is hoping for, that, that this will have a deterrent effect, that they won't need to use the law, but simply having it there will be enough to, to return stability to Hong Kong, at least in the way that Beijing wants it. Um, and that may be indeed one of the, the key purposes of having the law in the first place. Very interesting. So now Hong Kong is also watching Black Lives Matter protests as the rest of the world is. Uh, when Senator Tom Cotton called for sending the troops in in New York Times, does that also send chill to Hong Kong protesters? There's a very... Um complex relationship, I think, between the Hong Kong protesters and and political dynamics in the wider world. Um, I, I think that look, certainly the way that, that, that police, has, police have behaved in, in the US um, has been you know, just as bad and in many cases worse than what we saw on the ground here in Hong Kong. And so certainly hasn't done any uh, uh, done any favours to the cause of the protesters here who are trying to speak out against police violence here. Um, there are clearly Hong Kong as an issue has attracted um, attracted support from sort of all corners of politics. Um, and depending on what angle your whatever your sort of personal political preference is, you'll find, I think, people that are both uh, to your liking and not to your liking. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's interesting, this position that, that sort of Hong Kong occupies in, in that broader geopolitical context. So yeah, I think that, that people in Hong Kong, uh, you know, certainly are, are watching Black Lives Matter are aware of it. But I think it also probably fair to say that for many Hong Kongers, it feels a, a long way away. And with the immediate concerns that people have here in Hong Kong, it's, uh, they're more focused on that than, than what's happening in the US. And so in uh, Western societies, Anthony, in between preservation of law and order and the defense of freedom, where should the government draw the line there? Um, I mean, look, every... Every society and every legal system has their own answer to that question, and, and it's the it's the, always the the balance of of you know to put it in simplistic terms, feeling safe and feeling free. And uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's a, that there's a simple answer to that question. I think the one important distinction between Hong Kong and and many other countries in the world is that uh, in many other countries in the world with with democratic systems, it's ultimately the power to make the decision about that balance is in the hands of the people. Um, People are able to elect their representatives and elect their government who then go on to to make the laws that that make that decision. Um, And and there's a constant interaction between the people through the ballot box and the government to adjust that balance in one way or the other, depending on how the people feel. Whereas in Hong Kong, they, they don't have that ability. It's imposed um, effectively upon them externally. So people in Hong Kong don't have the power to, to make that decision as a community. Um, and so whatever, whatever, whatever decisions a community makes as to what, the balance, what balance is right for them, uh, it may be the case in other places in the world, but that, that's not the case here. And so recently when HSBC was called out to make a position uh, on the Hong Kong National Security Law, and so um, a lot of uh, the companies in the corporate world, particularly companies that are headquartered in Hong Kong, might be thinking about the same things. Am I uh, forced one day to take a side as well on this uh, very sensitive issue? And so what does that Hong Kong experience tell the rest of the world about uh, doing business uh, with China in the future? I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right that, that many companies were watching the, the fate of companies like HSBC and also like Cathay Pacific that was subject to a great deal of political pressure in Hong Kong. And I think I also think it's you're quite right that in the future companies will increasingly be called upon to 
to, as they say in Chinese, to, 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 to make an expression of, of, of their position, to make their position clear. And that's something that uh, you know, has perhaps you know, been a feature in the, the, the mainland in the past, but the Ho Hong Kong has traditionally been seen as a politics-free zone, and that, that's no longer the case. And one interesting aspect, again, of the protests last year was how how international companies were were drawn into uh, the the political maelstrom surrounding the protests, and if they advertently or inadvertently took action that was seen as supporting the protests, that they would incur the wrath of either the Chinese government or the Chinese consumer. And I think that's going to be a, uh, that's a, something that that companies generally have to be very cognizant of going forward. That if you're doing business in China or doing business with China, you have to think about your corporate reputation. Um, among that that customer base or in that market, and increasingly corporate reputation is tied up with with political positions and whether you uh, support or don't support the the policy positions of of, of the Chinese government. Um, and in a world where uh, we're seeing increasing conflict between governments, between, for example, you know. The, the US and China being the most obvious, um, that starts to put companies in a very difficult position because companies that previously would have hoped that they can avoid politics and just lay low and, and do business and not get involved on either side um, are increasingly going to be called upon or pressured to take a stand one way or the other. And I think that's going to be a, a very uncomfortable position for companies to find themselves in and it may ultimately lead to them having to make having to make difficult decisions or incurring incurring the displeasure of either one or other of their markets. Mm. Anthony, uh, if you were to give uh, to be given five minutes to speak with uh, Prime Minister, um, uh, you know, of the UK or say Chancellor of uh, Germany uh, regarding Hong Kong, what would be your advice to them? Um, look, I, I think it's important for the world to to continue to pay attention to Hong Kong. Um, it, it, on the one hand, it, it, it's true that. It, you know, trying to put force on, on the government in Beijing and, and tell them what to do um, is not going to be a successful strategy. Um, but I think that at the same time, it needs to be recognised that the, 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 the Chinese government are... Um, uh, do care about their international reputation and do want to be seen to be behaving as responsible actors in the international community and upholding uh, you know, key values such as the rule of law in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere. And so by continuing to, to pay attention to what's happening in Hong Kong, to, to let the Chinese government know that, that those governments are, are, are watching and paying attention, uh, that that helps to ensure that Beijing does continue to, to behave in, in, in an open and, and, and even-handed way or at least as, as far as possible, it can, it can moderate their approach to Hong Kong. Um, and it also provides, I think, important moral support to, to the Hong Kong community. And, and so this, I, the idea that if the Chinese government goes too far, um, then ultimately people will be given options to, to move elsewhere, to move to, to the UK or, or elsewhere, that that also is, uh, I think, an important factor in, in moderating Beijing's behaviour. So I think all these things are, are constructive and continuing to, 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 to focus, to pay attention, to engage in the issue um, is, is a constructive way to, to, to help the people of Hong Kong ultimately without um, necessarily having to try to forcefully change Beijing's policy. Would sanctions be advisable? Look, I don't think that's the, the best way to go about it. And it's, it's frankly very difficult to, to manage when you look at... I don't know specifically what the US government is trying to do, but they're going to, they're going to have to manage a very difficult path between trying to, to use sanctions to put pressure on, on the Chinese government or the Hong Kong government, but at the same time do it in a way that doesn't hurt the ordinary Hong Kong people or Hong Kong businesses or indeed other international businesses that are operating in Hong Kong, including US businesses. So it's very difficult to see uh, what kind of a sanctions policy or what kind of a policy that they can they can pursue that is going to to achieve an outcome that that, that, that affects the Chinese government without having the, the Hong Kong people as collateral damage. So I, I don't think it's, it's going to be an effective approach, no. Well, thank you for a most fascinating talk. Anthony uh, Depuren, author of City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. It's freshly available on Amazon and I'm sure a, store near, a bookstore near you. So check the book out. I want to thank the producer of uh, today's uh, Intelligence Square podcast, Connor Boyle. And thank you for tuning in to Intelligence Square, the podcast as well. I'm sure you see you next time. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. 
Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.